in a very real way, the most evident and direct contact that any one of us will have before the coming of the Savior with God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus was approached by the disciples of John who were coming to him from John, uh, who was in prison at the time in Matthew chapter 11, the disciples of John came and said, the master sent us to you with the question, are you he that should come or do we look for another? And Jesus' response was, well, go and show John again the things that you have seen and heard. Show to John what? That the blind see, that the lame walk, that the dead are raised to life again, and that the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And... The reality is we don't see many of those other miracles in our time as they did for a short period during the ministry of the Savior and during the time of his apostles immediately following. The time of miraculous displays of divine power in an obvious and evident form as they were in that day is past. It's not needed any longer. Why? Because the church of Jesus Christ is established. Because the church is established and the gospel is proclaimed. But a truth that remains and will remain until the Savior's second coming is that the gospel is preached to the poor. And this was a marvelous thing. It was a novel thing in the day when it happened because prior to that time, knowledge was very limited and information was doled out in very small bits to specific people. That was true even among the Jews. Only the most educated had access to the scrolls. The others only heard bits and pieces of the word read from time to time. And, and there was a very focused attention given to specific messages of the Old Testament scripture. And the message was never presented with clarity and never empowered by the Spirit of God to the ears of those who heard it. But that changed with the advent of the gospel ministry. And Jesus said of, of the kingdom of heaven, since the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom is preached and every man presseth into it. And that was true. So we have access to the gospel and that's power. That's powerful. Jesus lists it in the same breath with these other miraculous works that were so evident and so powerful and so magnificent. This morning we, we shared about the importance of the gospel, the power of the gospel to change lives, to change the world, and most importantly, to impact you and to impact me. The gospel makes a difference. The gospel declares the person, the power, the glory of Jesus Christ, the authenticity of God, the God who created all things, but the God who created you. From the broad to the very narrow focused. And the gospel convicts and convinces men of sin. And the gospel declares that as sinners, we can't save ourselves. But salvation is in and through Christ alone. And there are things that go along with salvation that are absolutely important, that are absolutely necessary. And the gospel answers that question that aches in the heart of every child of God when confronted with it. Men and brethren, what shall I do? And the gospel tells me 
what I need to do. The gospel says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. But the gospel says more than that. The gospel says, follow Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and forever. The Apostle Paul writes in the first Corinthian letter to a church that's full of professing Christians who have strayed far from the path that Christ has called them to walk in. And the apostle writes, and he says this beginning in, I hate to jump into the middle of a context, but we're going to do it anyway. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writes and says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be done so unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Again, we're jumping into context here. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and he's pointing out to them his decision to conduct himself in the way he did among them. What is Paul? He's an apostle of the Lord. He's a minister of the gospel, a messenger. The word gospel itself is, is the Greek word euangelon, which means to evangelize. It means to preach. It means good news. A proclamation, a declaration of good tidings. What is he? He's a messenger of good tidings. The etymology of the English word gospel means simply good story or God's story. The gospel is a message and Paul is a messenger. And Paul says, I have the power to demand that as one who is preaching the gospel, I should be supported or provided for by those who hear the gospel. But he says, I've chosen not to do that. I've chosen to make the gospel without charge. Why? Because I don't want to abuse my power and I don't want anyone to think I'm doing it for personal gain. Furthermore, he says, I don't preach the gospel because it's something I'm going to gain from in this time, in this life. I don't preach the gospel to get rich or to get powerful or to gain influence. I preach the gospel because it is laid upon me to do so. He says, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. That word dispensation means simply a stewardship. It's a responsibility. I'm a curator of the gospel. Why? Because I've been given something precious. I've been given an understanding and the only thing I can do to pay back that gift is to give it away. The only thing I can do to properly care for that gift is to make it known to others. 
And that should be the attitude of anyone who has received an understanding to whom the gospel has come impactfully. If the gospel has impacted your life, you have something precious. And to you it is so precious that you want others to share in that truth. You want others to share that gospel. That's the Apostle Paul here. He says, I am committed a dispensation of the gospel. So where is my reward? Verily, when I preach the gospel, I make the gospel of Christ without charge. I don't abuse my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I may, might gain the more. What we're getting into this morning is Paul's explanation of how we preach the gospel. How we reach people with the message of Jesus Christ. How we do the work committed to us as a New Testament church and to us as ministers of the gospel. Paul's telling us his trade secret, as it were. How God has empowered him to make a difference in the kingdom of the Lord. He says, I make the gospel without charge. I don't use my position for personal gain or advantage. And I don't make sure that everyone affords me the proper attention, the proper respect. Paul deserves the respect of an apostle. He is one of those most intimate and closest to Jesus Christ. And yet he's preaching to churches where people are demeaning him, where they're questioning him, where they're holding him in ridicule. And what's he doing? He's still preaching the gospel to them. He says, though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I may might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. It's important as we get into this to understand Paul is not advocating nor practicing dissimulation. He's not being a play actor, pretending to be one thing around one people and another thing around another people. But what he is doing is that which is most effective to communicate with individuals, to be received by them, to be heard by them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. We find an example of that in Paul's ministry. When Paul goes around the Jews and he goes to Jerusalem, and what does he do? He goes through a purification ritual that's unique to the Jewish people. He doesn't do this because he thinks it's necessary to serve Jesus Christ. This man's been traveling among Gentile people and he's been living and eating among Gentiles. But he comes to Jerusalem and there he agrees to a purification ritual. Why? to be better received among the Jews because it's not going to hurt him to do something they ask of him. And that can be the case today in our world. From time to time when we're interacting with people and they have strange customs that to us have no meaning, no value, no significance. But it's what they do. And we have a choice to make. Do we say that's not required? That's not mandatory. I'm not going to be subject to that custom. Or do we observe that there's nothing about that custom that's going to do any harm to the cause of Christ? And we participate. I could tell you a story about a time in Cambodia where I ate some things that I didn't want to eat. <laughs> but I couldn't find anything in the Bible that said you can't eat that. Something they were eating... I went along. That's a judgment call from time to time. Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. 
to them that are under the law as under the law. But I might gain them that are under the law. These Corinthians to whom he's writing, they're having a big argument about meats that are sold in shambles. About who can eat what meats and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And part of Paul's argument in response to that is, it's not against God's law for you to partake of these meats. But in doing so, you may cause your brother to stumble. So what's the wise, what's the prudent choice? Can you do without that inexpensive meat if it's going to keep your brother on the right path, keep him from stumbling. To them that were under the law, I became as under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, you say, hold on a moment, without law. Paul's going to become without law? Well, he clarifies, he gives us a a parenthetical here. Not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. Paul's saying to those who are outside of the law, I'm not going to tell them, here's the law that we need to follow. Here's the precepts that I'm following. He says, I'm going to keep the law of God. I'm going to serve Jesus Christ no matter where I am. And that's going to bring me under the law when I'm among the Jews, maybe more strictly under the law than is required of me. But with those who are without law, I'm not going to tell them, here's the law that I'm following. I'm simply going to do what's right. I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. It's about attention and where it's drawn to. That I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. What does that mean? To the weak became I as weak. One of the hardest things for us to do is act as though we are less capable than we think we are. You see, we're all posers. We're all trying to seem stronger, tougher, bigger than we actually are. You don't believe it, any of you men who have ever been in a weight room, how much weight have you pretended you were able to lift? And how have you how have you cheated on, on doing your bench presses? So you didn't really come all the way down, but you got a few extra pounds on there. We all want to seem stronger than we are. We all want to seem better than we are. Paul goes the opposite direction. The weak became I as weak. But he's not doing this holding back. This isn't like a pool shark pretending not to know how to play until he suckers someone in and then he's able to beat them. No, that's not it. To the weak became I as weak. To the brother or sister who's having a little bit of struggle understanding a scripture or understanding a a requirement of the scripture. And you think you've got that text figured out. You think you understand it. How are you going to approach it? As though you've got all the answers? Making them feel stupid? Making them feel less intelligent? Like they can't figure it out? Paul says to the weak became I as weak. What's he doing? Two things. One, putting himself in the place of someone else. Imagining where they're at, what they're dealing with, what they're feeling, what their experience has led them to. So you can understand where they're coming from and better communicate with them. But also, taking a step back and realizing, I'm not better than they are. I'm not better. I am weak. 
Paul had to be reminded of that. How do I know that? Well, there was a time when he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that troubled him, buffeted him. He went to God and prayed, deliver me from this. And the Lord's final answer was no. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul thought he was strong. He depended on his strength. God said, I'm going to make you weak. Paul says here to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. What's the emphasis on each of these elements, each of these things he mentions that I might gain, that I might gain the Jew, that I might gain those that are without the law, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That I might by all means save some. Do you hear the desperation in this word? That by all means, this is the same apostle, the same one who wrote in the Roman letter and said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I want this with all of my heart. That by all means, I might save some. He's saying, I'm not going to one, leave one stone unturned. I'm not going to leave one thing undone. I'm going to do everything I can that by all means I might save some. And this I do. This I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. Paul says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. Because of the gospel, I do this. I do this that I might partake with you in the blessings of the gospel, of who Christ is, of what he's done, of the salvation that we have in common. I do all things. I become all things to all men. I suffer, I sacrifice, I give, that I might be partaker thereof with you. And then he gives this illustration or this point. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Don't you know that every time a race is run, everybody enters, everybody starts, but only one finishes first. There's only one winner. No matter what the world may tell you, no matter how, may, how they may change the rules or how many trophies they may make, there's only one winner. When my kids were little, they used to talk about first winner, second winner, third winner. No, there's only one winner. And that's what the apostle here is inspired to say. Don't you know that they all run, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. Run like it matters. That's what he's saying. You see, the focus here isn't on the prize. It's not about what you're going to get for it. If we're all in this race we call life, if we're all running the Christian race, and only one can win, does that mean we might as well go up, give up? I might as well quit because Brother Russell is so far ahead of me already. He's going to win. No, so run that ye may obtain. Run like your life depends on it. Live your life and preach the gospel like it matters because it does. 
and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. You, if, you're, if you're running like it matters, if you're running to win the race, it's going to change everything about the rest of your life. That's the idea conveyed here. That's why it immediately goes to this idea of temperance. Everyone that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. He doesn't eat the way I do because he can't win the race if he's got this physique you see before you. That's not going to work. He's going to watch what he eats. He's going to exercise. He's going to prepare himself. He's going to do what is necessary. And Paul admonishes these professing believers Run so as though that ye might obtain. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. And these people that he's talking about, these people who run in the various races similar to the Olympic Games, which were still, as I understand it, being practiced in that time, these people who run in the race... They do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, an incorruptible. There is, henceforth, Paul says, laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give, and not to me only but to all them that love his appearance. There's not one prize, one crown. No, there's a crown for everyone who is the Lord's. But what does he say? Run like it's yours alone. Run like it matters because it does. If someone will will work themselves and exercise and, and starve and do all the things necessary to run a long distance race and win... Just to win a a laurel crown that's going to fade away and decay. Just for the pride of saying, I won. We pursue something incorruptible. Something that never fades away. How much are we willing to do for this? Paul says, I've done all. All things. I've become all things to all men. If by all means I might save some. I want to be a partaker of the gospel with you. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul says there's no point at which we get to rest on our laurels. There's no point at which we get to say, I've arrived. I've gotten it. The greatest minister of the gospel, the Apostle Paul himself, what does he say? He says, I don't go into autopilot. I don't just wave my arms and beat at the air. I don't just fight with enemies that aren't there. I don't run uncertainly a meandering, wandering path. What do I do? I keep my eyes fixed on the goal, on the prize. Why? Because it matters. And he says, I don't want 
after having preached to others, to become myself a castaway. Does this mean he was questioning his salvation? Does it mean he was questioning his assurance? Too many texts show us Paul was confident in the work God had done in him. He's not doubting his salvation, his, his assurance. But what he's saying is, if I'm not vigilant, if I'm not diligent, I might not be partaker with you. And that is an untenable thought. It's something he can't consider. I strive. I keep my body and bring it under subjection. Why? Because one sin, one sin can turn me aside. One error, one error can come between me and my Lord and my witness and my testimony and the glory that he would magnify and manifest in my body. He then turns to Old Testament Scripture in chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea and all did eat the same spiritual meat. All did eat the drink the same spiritual drink. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Writing to these Jewish believers, he says, let me remind you, all of our fathers were delivered by God out of Egypt. That means they all did what they were required to do. They all slew a lamb and they painted the lintel and doorposts of their, of their house and, and God passed over when he was killing the firstborn and he delivered them out. They all came to the Red Sea and there God opened the sea up and they crossed over dry shod. And they were all delivered. Delivered there into the Sinai Peninsula. There to the, to the base of Mount Sinai. Where God gave them the law. And then, then sent them forth. On their way to the promised land. They all ate of the manna that fell from God out of heaven. And they were delivered all the way to the borders of the land of promise. And if you remember the story, God sent spies into the land from each of the tribes and they examined the land to see whether it was everything God had promised them it was. No, they were supposed to be examining it to see how they were going to approach it when they went in to, to take the land. But what they saw was it's more than we imagined. It's more beautiful, more magnificent, better than we could have imagined. Oh, but there are giants in the land. And Cities that have walls that go all the way up to heaven and there's no hope for us, puny us, to take the land. The enemies are too strong. So they didn't go in. In fact, they decided that they couldn't go in and then God said, you know what, you're right, you can't go in. I won't allow you to go in. And they said, well God, if you're going to be that way, we will go in. And they essayed to go in and take the land. What happened? Many of them died. And then they came back and regrouped. And for 40 years they wandered and they all died in the wilderness. That's what Paul's referring to here. He says God delivered them all. But with many of them God was not pleased. 
and many of them perished in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Why does the Old Testament matter? Why do we have the Old Testament in our Bible? Because God gave us these things for examples. So we can learn from those who have gone before us. And here's the lesson the Holy Spirit would have us learn from it. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. Everybody knows that as a saying, as a proverb. Jesus Christ here gives it in his word as a command. Don't think because you have believed. Don't think because you have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Don't think because you're a member of the New Testament church that you're standing and that there is no possibility of falling. The Apostle Paul says, I keep my body and bring it under subjection. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And to these professing believers who are struggling at the time, he says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Whatever the temptation may be with which you struggle, whatever, whatever temptation it is that enters into my life, that stands between me and, and a close relationship with my Lord, that stands between me and bringing Him glory, whatever that temptation is, don't think it's something special, something unique, something that's never been faced before. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. What's the message here? The message is, if you are God's, then God is with you. And he's with you even when that temptation comes. He's with you even in that struggle. He's with you even in that moment of doubt, that moment of fear. So what do you do? You cling to Him like your life depends upon it. Because it does. And the God who stands with you, He will make a way for you to escape. This is God's Word. Do you believe it? It's the truth. He is with you. This message from Old Testament Scripture applied to New Testament saints, it's recurring in the Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 3, 
The apostle writes and says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope unto the end. Wherefore... As the Holy Ghost saith, today, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter in to my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. The same message, the same idea. What did Paul say? I want to be a partaker with you in the gospel. And what does he say here? He says something prevented, something prevented them from entering into rest. And he said, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. What was that secret for Paul? It was proclaiming the gospel by any means. It was by any means doing everything to make all men see that by any means he might save The warning is given. Don't harden your hearts. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy for our hearts to begin to harden. To be hardened against those with whom we are growing weary. With whom we're growing disgusted. Those who have turned aside from the truth. The Apostle Paul encountered some of those. In fact, he writes to Timothy and he reminds them of some individuals who had turned aside from the truth and had turned others aside from the truth. And what does he say about them? He says, when you encounter them, be careful how you go about dealing with them. He says, when you encounter those who have strayed, who have erred from the truth, He says, you approach them 
and you approach them in patience and you approach them in gentleness. He says, these individuals are not good characters. Second Timothy chapter 2, he speaks of these guys and the work that they've done. He says, their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus who concerning the truth have erred, saying the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. But closing that chapter, he says this, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. If Paul's heart wasn't hardened, against these individuals to whom he had preached, who had professed faith and abandoned the faith. And how are our hearts going to be hardened against our brothers and sisters with whom we disagree over minor matters? Or with our brother who has fallen into some grievous sin? Are we going to think God can't renew him to repentance? Are we not going to recognize and consider ourselves lest we also be tempted What does he say? He says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Recognize the importance of the work we're doing and that it always matters. Hebrews chapter 12, Paul goes back to this analogy of the race. Do not all run, but only one wins the prize. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the race. We're all running. Let us run with patience the race set before us. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus as our great example. Yes, looking to Jesus as our strength. For consider Him, Jesus, that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You see, sometimes we we read these texts and we kind of gloss over them as if they're not written to, to me. We think, well, this is for those sinners. This is for those 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 false professors. This is for those Christians who have strayed. This isn't for me. No, it's written to me. It's written to you. Think about Jesus. Consider him. Consider what he endured and for what he endured it, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. This is a very conditional text. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. 
If you're not considering Christ, you're going to grow weary. All it takes is running the race to make you tired. At least that's what I hear. Those of you who run can can testify if that's true. You run, you get tired. There's a point you feel like giving up. What's the use? Consider Him. Consider Christ. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider your own suffering, your own sacrifice. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What's the race? What's this this long-distance race we're engaged in? It's a fight against sin. It's a war against the sin that is in our flesh, the sin that is in our mind, the sin that is in our heart. But we have the victory because the victory is in Jesus Christ. And that sin, it's nailed to the tree of His cross. Consider Him. Consider what He endured. Consider the victory that He's won, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Part of running the race is enduring the harsh and chastening hand of God. How do we receive that? The conviction when it comes. The acknowledgement of our own weakness, our own insufficiency, our own inability. How do we handle that? How do we receive that? He says, receive it as God dealing with you as sons. Receive it as the love of God, for that's what it is. Why? Because no temptation has, has taken you. But that which is common to man... And he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Run to him and not away from him. Desire his chastening. Desire his strength. Desire his presence. For verily, they, for a few days... Chastened us after their own pleasure. But God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. So lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees Make straight paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. What's he saying? Don't be weary and faint in your minds. Lift up your hands that are hanging down. Strengthen up, straighten up your knees that are growing weak. Make straight paths for your feet. Not meandering paths. What did Paul say in the Corinthian letter? He said, I don't fight as one that beateth at the air. I'm not just making a bunch of wind. I'm not just making a bunch of noise. I'm fighting as though it matters. I'm not 
fighting to score points. I'm fighting to do damage. Returning to our text. First Corinthians chapter 10. Understanding that God is with you. And understanding that with temptation He will make a way of escape. Understanding that God's interest is your interest and God's power is engaged on your behalf as he says in Romans 8. Having given his own son, how shall he not with you, with him also freely give you all things? Wherefore flee from idolatry. We've talked about idolatry before. What is idolatry? It's anything that takes priority in my mind and heart away from God. God is first. If I lift anything up near to God, that's an idol. The dearest idol I have known, pray, help me tear it from its throne. Let me worship only you. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. And he goes in on to confront them with errors in their worship and errors in their structure and errors that they have embraced as a people because they're serving themselves instead of Christ. Does it matter? One of the most common questions which always surprises me that I encounter among Christians today Begins with, what is the difference between church A or church B? And you begin to talk about the differences, the distinctions, and the question is, why does it matter? And maybe you're sympathetic to that question with relation to some Christian congregations. My son William's taking a comparative religion class in high school, they're studying the major world religions. I think they've narrowed it down to 12, which is pretty impressive given there are thousands, if not a million. But the question asked in the class over and over again, as he tells me, is why does it matter? Why does it matter? Does it matter? And maybe in our lives we ask the question sometimes, does it matter? And maybe sometimes it's a evaluation process we apply to nearly every choice we make. Does it matter? You see, the problem as Christians is we can no longer plead ignorance. If we are students of the Word, we know what God's Word says. And almost every situation, almost every decision, almost every choice we make, we know what God's Word says on the matter. But the reality is we often don't like the direction that's going to lead us. So the question becomes, does it matter? In fact, I would argue that the vast majority of Christian denominations and religions today, their entire theology is built around that question. 
You say, what do I mean? Well, I mean this. The question is, what do I have to do to get to go to heaven when I die? And whatever that answer is, that's all that matters. What does God's word say? Brothers and sisters, it all matters. Why? Why does it matter? It matters because God's glory is at stake. God's declared glory in this world where I live is connected intimately to my faithfulness to his word. Paul says, I don't fight like one who's just trying to make some noise. I fight like one who needs to win the battle. And he says, I don't run the race like someone who's just making time, who just wants to be there at the end of the day. Still standing, still walking, still jogging. He says, no, so run. Like the one who's going to win the prize, be at the front of the pack and run. Because it matters. And the Apostle Paul applies that to his proclamation of the gospel. He says, there might be some who preach Christ for personal gain. There might be some who preach Christ simply to add to my bonds. There might be some that preach Christ for any number of reasons. He says, I'm going to rejoice that Christ is being preached, but I'm going to preach Christ because necessity is laid upon me, because a dispensation is given to me, because it's the most important thing in the world to me. And if you've heard the gospel, and if the gospel has impacted your heart and mine the way that it ought to, and if I haven't become deadened and dulled to what that gospel meant, and if the word of God is something I truly desire more than my necessary food, Well, first of all, I would be a lot thinner than I am. It's a fact. If this all matters, if this is all of great consequence to me, then with the Apostle Paul, I will spend and I will be spent for the sake of the gospel. And you will too. And I won't make those evaluations, those choices, and say, well, does it really matter? The answer will be yes, it matters. It all matters. Why? As I began the message this morning, I told you the closest interaction we will ever have in a manifest way with the miraculous work of our sovereign God is going to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that interaction is found when it is communicated from faith to faith. And when my heart receives it as truth, and I say, Amen, and I embrace it, I profess faith, And I say, I'm going to do what his word says. If that occurs 
in my life and if it incurs in yours. And then I turn aside and say something else matters more to me than that. In a significant way, I am denying the Lord who bought me. And that's something I should be ashamed of. Paul writes to this New Testament church and he says, quit making time in this race that you've entered into. Quit fighting at the air. Quit producing light with no heat or heat with no light, however that's supposed to go. Realize that what you do matters. What you say matters. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is here. He's with you in the fight. And he will give you the victory. The victory is yours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Understanding that, what do we do? We run. We run as though our lives depend on it. Because our lives, they're hid with Christ in God. In Christ's glory, it's magnified in us. What did Paul finally say to the Philippian church? He said, oh, I am in a strait betwixt two. I desire to depart and be with God, which is far, far better. I perceive it's more needful for you that I remain. So I don't know what I want. But this I know. Whether by life or by death. So that Christ is magnified in my body, I will rejoice. And brothers and sisters, we have given so much in which to rejoice. We have been given the gospel, the story, the story of God's work, the story of God's love, the declaration of Jesus Christ and all that he is doing. We've been given the privilege. We've been given the commission, we've been given the dispensation to carry forth that truth, to make it known in our lives. It matters. It's important. It's worth everything else. That'll cause us to let go of all those those prejudices and all of those ideals and all of those private desires Paul says to the Jews, I'm become a Jew. To the Greeks, a Greek. To those with the law, I'm become obedient to the law. To those without the law, I'm become as one without the law, yet under the law of Christ. I am become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. Let that be our desire. Let that be our attitude and our approach. And let us look to him that we grow not weary and that we don't faint in our minds. And we, the church of Jesus Christ, will stand. We will stand as a witness of his truth no matter what the world may throw at us. And we'll stand as a light no matter how dark the darkness gets around us. And Jesus Christ will be magnified in us. There's nothing more that we could desire. There's nothing more important in the life of any one of his children than that he be magnified in us.
whether that's through life, whether that's through death, whether that's through suffering or whether that's through ease. But when suffering comes, the temptation is going to be there. No matter how strong you may think you are, the temptation will be there to give up. To say, it doesn't matter that much. To let it go. God's word says, no, it matters. It's significant. It's your life. Thank you for your time, your prayer, your attention. I pray the word blessing on his word. Thank you.